The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the front lines, discuss the latest diplomatic and political updates from Germany to China, and we sit down with William Alberg from the International Institute for Strategic Studies to discuss nuclear proliferation, missiles, and lessons from 19 months of war in Ukraine. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 19th of October, 2023. One year and 237 days since the full-scale invasion began. Joining me today is Associate Editor for Defence, Dom Nichols, and William Alberg, Director of Strategy, Technology and Arms Control at the IISS. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Hello, David. Hello, everybody. So we spoke yesterday about the early reports that were coming in of Ukrainian forces allegedly having crossed the Dnipro in southern Ukraine. So we were talking about the area about 10 k's due east of Hezon City, so due east but over the river. Pro-Kremlin military bloggers had said that Kyiv's troops had got over there, made a bridgehead, captured the town of Poima and were pushing north towards the nearby town of Pishkinivka. Unverified footage later in the day appeared to show Ukrainian forces being targeted by artillery near the, there's a destroyed railway railway bridge in that area. Uh, and then Rybar, which, as I said yesterday, is one of the least unreliable Russian military blogger groups, but you've got to keep your eye on them, uh, said the situation has stabilised thanks to massive shelling of both the forward and rear lines of the Ukrainian Navy. They say the Navy because we think it was um, two, two different Ukrainian marine units that crossed over and an element of reconnaissance troops. Rybar then say, however, it's still a long way to completely surprise the enemy since there are reserves and no one has cancelled plans for an offensive in the Hezon region. So, I mean, a bit of mishmash through the translation there, but I, it sounds as if they are. there is still some element of Ukrainian forces across the river in that area. Don't know if they're able to be reinforced or, as I said yesterday, if it's just a, a raid, see what they can get away with, see if you can develop it into something else or if it's going to be backed up by any any uh, greater forces. So we'll keep our eye down there. Elsewhere in the offensive, so the general lead in Kyiv's offensive in the south says that it's proceeding as planned. General Alexander Tarnavsky said Ukrainian forces were con- continuing with their advance. Um, they're trying to get through to the Sea of Azov. He said they've had a partial success to the south of Robertina. He's making these comments after former Ukrainian presidential advisor, whose name escapes me for the moment. He said last week that the Kyiv's uh, counteroffensive had stalled and it was a disaster. I mean, they are, there, there's been minor changes across the lines. They have Ukraine has sli- pushed slightly further on in that wedge down in Zaporizhia region and up in the east. There's been uh, Ukraine has uh, again made very very small tactical advances around Bakhmut and a little bit further to the north. 
But in the east, sticking in the east, Russia continues to push to try to encircle the Avdivka or the town of Avdivka. Basically, they're, 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 there's a, a kind of trying to encircle it from the south and the north. They haven't had any success there. The rate of artillery fire has dropped off markedly. Um, they are still trying. The Ukrainian Ozint group, open source intelligence group, they assess that Russia has lost 63 destroyed or damaged armoured vehicles just on the northern flank alone. So, I mean, it's too soon to say whether they have culminated, uh, culmination being the military expression, which means you're not, you know, defeated, you're not going backwards, but you've no longer got the got the oomph to go forwards. So they might be approaching that point, especially if the uh, if the artillery is massively dropping off, because we know they are very heavy. They're very heavily led by artillery. However, elsewhere across the country, Russian attacks overnight and throughout yesterday killed civilians in Zaporizhia, Hezon, Mikolaev and the uh, Obikivka region in the central Dnitropetrovsk area. They also damaged the power grid in Kharkiv. These came from those, uh, that, those reports from Ukrainian officials. And Ukraine's emergency services have also posted a message on Telegram across the whole country or you know, hoping to reach people across the whole country saying... We ask everyone to be as careful as possible and always remember the high mine danger in the deoccupied territories. They're releasing that after mine blast in the east killed at least one one person there. Separately, President Biden, we are told, is considering a supplemental request to which would include 60 billion, big B billion, in defence aid for Ukraine and 10 billion for Israel. This is Reuters reporting today. We think President Biden is going to send the spending request to Congress as soon as tomorrow. This was reported to Reuters by an anonymous source said to be familiar with the issue. It follows on multiple sources saying a couple of days ago, what was that, Tuesday? Yeah, that President Biden was was thinking about a request for $100 billion which would include military aid for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan, as well as border security funding. But we think there's no 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 decision has been yet made by the president either to do it or the value. Sticking with the US, US officials confirmed that all 31 promised Abrams tanks have now arrived in Ukraine. Uh, US military officials said it would take some time before they are able to be deployed to the front. But US Army Europe and Africa spokesperson Colonel Martin O'Donnell said all the Ukrainian service personnel who had been training on the tanks alongside US forces in Germany had also gone back to Ukraine. So they're just going to shake out, get themselves ready, and uh, we'll probably see them in the next couple of weeks. And then uh, finally for me for this bit, interesting story out of the Moscow Times today reporting how Patriarch Kirill, who's the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, he was he said yesterday that Russia's nuclear weapons had saved the country. His word, saved the country. He said, were it not for the work of Soviet atomic bomb creator Igor Kurchatov and his colleagues, quote, it is difficult to say if our country would still exist. Unquote. So he made the comments while made the remarks while honouring the scientific director of Russia's Federal Nuclear Centre, and we are going to come back to the issue of uh, Russia's nuclear weapons with our guest a little bit later. But that's it for the military updates for now. Um, but in the absence of Francis, I think you've been looking at diplomatic stuff, David. Thanks very much, Tom. Yeah, just some quick political and diplomatic updates that play, I think, into the broader geopolitical picture today. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has criticised Vladimir Putin's cynical, his words, concern over the fate of civilians in the Israel-Hamas conflict as the Russian army continues, obviously, to wage war in Ukraine. The German Chancellor told Parliament, this is the full quote, it makes me more than furious to hear the Russian president repeatedly warning that there could be civilian casualties from an armed conflict. It doesn't get more cynical 
than that. This is obviously uh, a response to Putin earlier warning that they expected ground offensive by the IDF into Gaza would lead to, and again, this is his quote, absolutely unacceptable, close quote, civilian casualties. He also described the explosion at the hospital in Gaza as a tragedy. Uh, Interestingly, Schultz also said that the European Union must jointly continue to financially support Ukraine in the future, but the use of additional funds was not a solution in the long term. He said, uh, we have a clear stance here, this aid for Ukraine, for the financial stability of the country. We will have to provide this jointly as Europeans. This cannot all be solved with additional funds. Moving over to Asia, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has met the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. This comes from Russia's state-run TASS news agency, which reported that Mr Lavrov's meeting with Kim lasted over an hour, but the ministry did not provide further details. Uh, We know that this visit is seen as potentially setting the stage for a visit by President Vladimir Putin, who stepped up cooperation with North Korea in previous months. uh, Lavrov also said that relations between Russia and North Korea have reached a quote, qualitatively new strategic level. He arrived, uh, Lavrov arrived on Wednesday night after accompanying Putin on his trip to Beijing. Staying with Russian diplomacy and going back to Putin, he's wrapped up a two-day visit to China on Thursday. This is the first outside the former Soviet Union this year. He praised the unprecedented energy cooperation between Moscow and Beijing. This is as the Kremlin seeks to strengthen its Asian partnerships, making up for the loss of the European market. Putin said relations in the overall partnership and strategic cooperation between the Russian Federation and the Chinese People's Republic have reached an unprecedented high level and continue to develop dynamically. So diplomatic language there from Vladimir Putin. One of the key areas, he said, of this relationship is energy cooperation, which I think he means selling Russian hydrocarbons to China on the cheap. Going to Finland, finally, the Finnish Ministry of Defence. And this is this is a local story, but interesting because you see how European countries are moving internally against Russian uh, players and assets. But the Finnish Ministry of Defence has said that it's blocked three planned property transactions involving Russian buyers on grounds that allowing the acquisitions to take place could hamper the defence of Finnish territory. So the decision concerns two properties in Ruokkolati and one in Kiti, the Ministry of Defence said, both near the Russian border in southern Finland. Finland in recent weeks has sought to speed up its confiscation of Russian-owned real estate, citing Russian owners struggle to pay their expenses and taxes after the EU imposed sanctions on Russia after its invasion of Ukraine, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Uh, The Finnish government is planning to simplify regulations on notifying Russian owners as it's currently illegal to oust owners over unpaid bills if an official notification cannot be delivered to them. So that's just, I think, an interesting story from Finland and shows you some of the internal issues and challenges faced by parliaments and legislatures when they're thinking about, you know, how do you actually sanction some of these people? How do you move against them? What laws internally do you have to change? But back to you, Dom, for one more note, I think, from Russia's parliament. Yeah, I just wanted to mention there was a vote yesterday in the lower house of Russia's parliament that uh, gave final approval to a bill revoking the ratification of a global nuclear test ban treaty. Uh, Moscow's described this as putting it on a par with the United States. So Russian deputies yesterday passed the second and third readings of a bill with unanimous votes. Um, all happened very quickly. The votes were 415 in favour, no abstentions, no votes against. Um, Putin urged the parliament, you may remember, on October the 5th to make the change uh, to mirror, or as he sees it, to mirror the position of the United States. This is over the 1996 Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which prohibits tests involving nuclear weapons. Only North Korea has uh, carried out a test uh, this century. Russia says it will not resume testing unless uh, Washington does. 
But arms control experts are concerned it may be inching towards a test that the West would perceive as a, as a nuclear escalation, obviously in the context of the ongoing war. Well, as luck would have it, uh, or perhaps a smidgen of Dom's planning, we are actually able now to talk to an arms control expert. William Alberk uh, is Director of Strategy, Technology and Arms Control at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. His focus is on preventing the proliferation of nuclear weapons, weapons of mass destruction and related delivery systems, as well as risk reduction and arms control. He previously served as the Director of NATO's Arms Control, Disarmament and WMD Non-Proliferation Centre. William, thank you so much for your time. Welcome to the podcast. I know Dom wants to ask some questions in a moment, but first, can I just ask, in light of yesterday's vote in Russia, how concerned should we be about possible future Russian nuclear tests and your sense of the general direction of nuclear arms control? I think uh, what this indicates is that Russia wants more options in terms of how to increase and decrease tensions with the West. Um, Sergei Karaganov, who's a famous thinker uh, in the Russian system, actually wrote some very significant papers in June and September that advocated taking exactly these steps, uh, withdrawing from CTBT and preparing to potentially test in order to ratchet up tensions. So it's, it's clear that Putin is looking for more angles, more levers to try to induce panic, to make us afraid, to make us want to give up on Ukraine, to divide us. Unfortunately, this also means that arms control is absolutely going nowhere. Uh, there have been talks within the P5, that's the US, the UK, France, Russia, and China, in the NPT context. But these are at a very low level, and there's really no prospects on the horizon for arms control. Russia has suspended New START implementation, and the US has retaliated by also suspending. Uh, that treaty ends in, in three years uh, two and a half years now, actually, and there's just no prospect of talks on the horizon. So it looks like bilateral U.S.-Russian nuclear arms control is going to go away, and Russia is now looking at other opportunities, like I said, to ramp up tensions. Could you just uh, sort of, uh, what's the phrase, could we talk a little bit about the INF Treaty? Do you think there's any hope for that to be revitalized? And just for, for our listeners who don't come from th- this uh, sort of think tanky background, can you just remind us what the INF Treaty is and what does it cover? Right. The Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty between the U.S. and the Soviet Union was uh, finalized in 1987. And what it did was it eliminated all ground-launched ballistic and cruise missiles with ranges between 500 kilometers and 5,500 kilometers. And it didn't actually differentiate between nuclear or conventional armed because it was figured that you could swap out a warhead really easily. Uh, And so what this did was it eliminated the very strong Soviet system called the SS-20, which was a really highly accurate uh, uh, missile that could go around 4,000, 5,000 kilometers, uh, no, yeah, around 3,000, 4,000 kilometers, and destroy anything in Europe. Uh, And it was designed really to prevent the U.S. from being able to reinforce Europe. Uh, In case of war, the Soviets could dominate the conventional fight. And by hitting, you know, the ports of Antwerp and other critical places where U.S. forces would come in, they could keep us out of the fight. Um, Unfortunately, there's absolutely no way back to this treaty. One of the important things about the treaty is at the time, there just weren't that many types of cruise missiles, for instance. Now there are so many different types of cruise missiles that can be fired from air, land, and sea. And the Russians have uh, demonstrated that they can put nuclear warheads on almost any one of these variants. And they can also take one that's designed for anti-ship missions like the Ha-22, the Cage-22, and the Ha-32, the Cage-32. We've actually seen these 
fired by the Russians at land targets. Now, these used to be anti-ship cruise missiles, and so they weren't covered by the INF Treaty. But now that Russia's proven that they can improve them a little bit and fire them at land targets, that means there's no differentiation between a cruise missile that you could use against air targets, land targets, or sea targets that's launched from a land platform, a sea platform, or an air platform. So basically, there's no way back into the treaty. Plus, so many more countries now have these types of missiles, ballistic and cruise missiles, and are using them at very large scale. It, it really begs the question, why would only the US and Russia get into a treaty like this when, for instance, China or India or Pakistan, North Korea, South Korea, all these countries have very advanced, very capable missiles that look very similar, that have very similar capabilities to the ones that the US and the Soviets originally banned back in 1987. William Hayes, Dom, thanks so much for uh, for joining us on the pod today. So just moving on from what you said there about how technology almost is rendering a lot of the existing policy framework obsolete, really, I suppose. You've said the the development of long-range single-role weapons will be replaced increasingly by multi-role weapons capable of doing loads of other bits and pieces. So, so is the existing model of arms control architecture able to keep pace with such development? And if not, how likely is it that the whole system of arms control just collapses? Well, no, it's it's really not suited to this new era of accelerating technological capabilities and more players. It's also not suited because look at what's happening on the battlefield. It's not just advanced, stealthy, super fast missiles. It's actually very cheap and cheerful systems like unguided rockets or UAVs with bombs strapped to them. You can now build things out of your basement that have capabilities. So, so that the, the speed and spread of this technology, the number of players, the number of non-state actors, groups like Hamas and Hezbollah and the Houthis that now have access to precision-guided standoff systems, that this is fundamentally different than what, than what happened in the Cold War uh, or you know, even in the 90s when we still thought of arms control as something that is going to be between the very biggest, most capable nation-states. Now, anybody, any country in the world can start its own missile program, develop really advanced missiles, and even terrorist groups can acquire very, very high-quality missiles. Uh, It really does undermine – there's this thing called the Missile Technology Control Regime, which is really trying to stop the spread of missiles. Uh, That's been in place uh, for uh, four decades. Uh, But even it is straining under the need to change more rapidly as technologies spread and change and grow. It's just not suited. And you are absolutely correct. We do actually face the threat of the collapse of the entire system of missile control. And it's just because we have not really accelerated our arms control thinking with changes in the real world. Yeah, I was going to say, so where's the comparator in history we can turn to 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 try and find a way about how to navigate a landscape where technology is just running so far ahead of policy, politics, what is possible? As you say, a drone that you can build in in your basement can impact what would other 20, 30 years ago have been the preserved nation states. Yeah, it requires just a fundamental rethinking of how we think about technology spreads and technology limitations. Uh, It's just not going to be the domain of big countries to get together in a dark room and decide what the rest of the world should do. We're going to need to engage different players. We're going to need to engage industry more. And quite frankly, there is really no precedent for this. We've never been faced with such rapid change in technology, such rapid spread in know-how and knowledge. This is something that we've been worried about for decades 
because of computers and because of uh, advanced information sharing and all these things, but now it's actually here. And the problem is no one did their homework during the times when we should have been thinking about how to limit this. But ultimately, look, the problem is that countries want to attack each other and missiles are incredibly easy and useful and increasingly inexpensive ways to do that. UAVs are another entrant into how to do this. And so ultimately, if you're not getting to the causes of conflicts, all you're really doing is putting a plaster, a finger plaster over the problems. So I don't really have the answer here, but I, we do need to have a much more extensive conversation about how to manage conflict in the future and how to limit lethality in the future. And as we've seen everywhere where, where conflict is happening right now, that's going to be a really tough lift. Sure will. Now, you've described the war in Ukraine as being a proving ground for a variety of ballistic and, and cruise missiles. What conclusions have you drawn about the utility and the limitations of, of this class of uh, weapons? Right. So if you're, if you're going to get into a war and you're looking at missiles, number one, you're looking at the Tomahawk-type missile, the really kind of a subsonic cruise missile, and you're saying it's a lot easier to intercept with a really solid integrated air and missile defense system in place. The Ukrainians, I mean, cobbling together a system from Western and old Soviet and Russian equipment have managed to intercept a tremendous number of these subsonic cruise missiles. The Russians use the KH-101 a lot. The KH-101 is also the cousin of the KH-102, which is their primary air-launched cruise missile with nuclear warheads. So the Russians now have to be wondering how effective are these slower cruise missiles in a conflict with a near peer. So that whole category of missiles that a lot of countries have been pursuing have been intercepted far more than we thought. In addition, the Iskander missile, the SS-26 Iskander short-range ballistic missile that the Russians have been using in this conflict. The Russians advertised this for, for three decades, two and a half decades, as being uninterceptable, as missile defense killers. And the fact is the Ukrainians have been able to intercept some of them, not all of them, but more than one would have guessed before the war. So a lot of missiles that people had thought were going to be incredibly useful have proven to be more uh, vulnerable to interception than we thought. At the same time, the thing that the Ukraine war has proven is that the amount that you fire matters. Having lots and lots and lots of missiles, having lots and lots and lots of really cheap drones is an effective way to overwhelm defenses. And so we've had to go back from thinking about you know trying to intercept very, very super high capable missiles with very super high capable missile defenses. We also need point defenses with very cheap ammunition, like the Gepard. You know, this is basically a battle tank, an anti-aircraft battle tank with, um, you know, with twin, very fast-firing machine guns. And the old ZSU-20, these old machine gun-type systems that are designed to intercept uh, low-flying aircraft that had thought to be not very useful are actually incredibly useful in, in intercepting large swarms of drones that are coming at you. So all of this has forced us to rethink. On the very, very cheap end, having a lot of systems to overwhelm defenses is really important. So from the defensive point of view, you therefore need very cheap, highly mobile systems to be able to shoot these things down. At the same time, we can intercept the cruise missiles that are subsonic that are of the type that were that came up in the 80s and 90s so we're going to need better integrated air and missile defenses on those but for the super high-end countries i think for the weapons that they really want to make sure can hit the target they're going to need to rely upon stealth and much higher speeds in order to penetrate defenses uh, and that's a system that we have not seen uh, used a lot in this conflict things that the russians have like onyx the, the very, very, very fast uh, cruise missiles, 
uh, with stealth capabilities. They've been relying more on the 90s and 2000s and 2010 technologies. And like I said, those have been intercepted. So the big lesson, you need lots and lots of really cheap systems. And if you really want to kill something, you're going to need to have much, much higher capability, higher technology systems to penetrate defenses. William, thank you so much for talking us through your conclusions there. Can I ask you a sort of link question? As an expert looking at the war in Ukraine, what surprised you about the war? What's happened that you didn't expect and forced you maybe to sort of redraw some of your thoughts around around this area? On missiles in particular or just overall on the war? Um, Both. I mean, overall, but specifically on missiles would be interesting as well, yeah. I mean, overall, um, the, the, the... thing that really surprised me the most is poor political planning by the Russians. Poor political guidance into the planning meant a very, very poorly designed war effort that really, really failed. And some people are therefore overinterpreting that lesson to me that the Russians are totally incompetent, that we could beat them in a fight with NATO. Of course, I think if they fought NATO, they would have done much better planning. Because early in the war, especially, we saw them do this blitzkrieg on Kiev, but they didn't do the shock and awe campaign with hundreds and hundreds of missiles in the very early stages of war as we expected. You know, you'd expect something like two-thirds of all missile expenditures to happen in the first month or so of this conflict. Instead, they used very few missiles early on because I think they thought they could capture infrastructure intact and they didn't want to destroy it. And so now it's just become too late for them to really surge a huge amount of missiles and have mass effect on the battlefield. And, and that really is how the West thinks about conflict. We think about a very, very early stage in the conflict, completely overwhelming defenses. The other thing is this is a conflict where there's no real suppression, no successful su- suppression or defeat of air defenses. And again, that's something that goes so much into Western planning and thinking that we've got to knock down air defenses right away so we can establish air superiority and conduct close air support of offenses. This is one of the things that we're watching with Ukraine right now. They're not very effective in their counter offenses because they simply don't have the close air support that, are, that that really is necessary to conduct these kinds of operations against dug-in forces. Another lesson is really, you know, this, this drip, drip, drip approach of supplying weapons is just not going to work. You really do need to hit the bad guys with everything you've got in early stages. And so a lot of Western approach to supplying Ukraine has been too slow, behind the eight ball. You know, we just haven't supplied them with what they needed right away. Um, Russian adaptation is occurring on the battlefield. It is much slower than we would expect, and it's still much less effective than we would expect. And I think the lessons for China here are incredible because China, we have to remember, hasn't fought a land war since 1979. They have two generations of military officers who've never seen any kind of combat whatsoever. And as they watch the Russians, who have had some combat experience uh, over the past 30 years in places like Syria and Chechnya and Georgia, they, they must really be concerned right now because, you know, having a cadre of troops that just has never been on a battlefield and having leaders who have never planned in a battlefield. That's another big takeaway from this is, is you know, you really need highly motivated, well-trained soldiers who really understand what they're doing. And, and that doesn't really appear to be the Chinese model of leadership and training. And it certainly isn't what we're seeing in Russia. So yeah, I'm learning a lot. And on missiles, like I said, the adaptation of missiles to be launched from any platform at any type of target just makes a nonsense of previous attempts to define and limit and verify arms control regarding missiles, which means if you want missile controls, you're going to have to go much, much bigger. But it also means that 
you can't look at a system and say, well, that system's outdated. I mean, look at the attackums that we're just giving to Ukraine now. These were designed and produced between, designed in the 80s and produced between 1990 and 1997, the ones that we just gave them, the M39 Block 1s. These are old systems that we thought of as obsolete, and they're having incredible effects even in the first week of their use in the battlefield in Ukraine. So we can't look at systems and say it's old and garbage. You can do modifications to the optics, the optical systems you know, for targeting. You can program them in different ways. You can update software. You can change them. So it, it means that old systems can be new again as well. And again, numbers count. The more you launch, the more you can absorb defenses, the more you can actually have effects on battlefields. So lots and lots of lessons here. I'd like to ask you in a moment about the uh, the attackums, but just before we move on to that, just a point you were, you mentioned earlier that you've just picked up again there, and you mentioned earlier in relation to the KH one hundred and two. So ballistic missiles had their day. Just simple physics is going to be is easy to intercept, or could hypersonic just the speed of of uh, coming down, the speed they come down five uh, Mach five and what have you, is that going to be able to get through defenses, or is maneuver king now? Do these things have to be able to maneuver to to get through defenses? I think it's mass and maneuver and stealth that are going to be the future. I mean, ballistic missiles, let's, let's face it, ballistic missiles have proven themselves better than people expected. Ballistic missiles were thought in the 90s and 2000s to be yesterday's technology. But if you can improve their accuracy, which we can, uh, to make them very, very accurate, at least as accurate as cruise missiles, that terminal velocity matters. Those things come down very, very quickly. And if you can add maneuverability onto the descent phase of a ballistic missile, then you're really talking about something that's much harder to intercept. But again, uh, like I mentioned, the Iskander, you know, they have intercepted them. And even the Kinjal, which is basically an Iskander on an airplane, so it's all descent phase, so it's all speed, there, there, it appears that there's been some intercepts of those as well. So I do think it's going to be maneuver and stealth in combination with speed in order to really, really defeat a peer enemy. But if you're talking about someone that's less than a peer, where you can overwhelm them, where you have huge technology advantage, there's still a role for even older ballistic missiles with new optics to do damage. Thanks. Now, on to the attackums, as you mentioned it. Before, well, could you explain to the two variants of attackums, the shorter range, longer range, and the, the cluster munition, single unitary warhead? What, what are we talking about here? And then separately, does the introduction of, of attackums to Ukraine's arsenal, is it, does it just offer just a bit more range, a bit more precision, or does it fundamentally change the battlefield or, or political calculus here? Oh, uh, big question. So first of all, I, uh, what we're seeing right now, uh, what we've seen evidence of uh, having hit two airfields in uh, Russia so far, it appears to be the Attackums uh, MGM-140 uh, missiles with the M39 Block 1 warheads. So these uh, fired uh, 950 of these M74 submunitions, basically 950 hand grenades go flying over a very large area. They can do they can provide an anti-personnel mission for out to 15 meters for each one of these little bomblets. So they can hit an area, you know, a, a kilometer square and basically destroy any soft target in there. And so we've seen them against uh, two airfields uh, and it appears that they've knocked out a bunch of helicopters on those two airfields. They have a range, so this is block one of the M39 that has a range of 165 kilometers. Block 2 has a much larger range and, and you know, the further developments, the M48 version has a 186-mile range. The M39A1 has 186 miles, also 300-kilometer range. So these will allow 
Ukraine basically to range any targets in Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk, and almost all of occupied Luhansk. Uh, it doesn't quite buy them a lot in Crimea, but it does mean every logistics hub, every ammunition depot, every airfield that they're using, every large concentration of soft targets in Occupied Ukraine, except for Crimea, is now totally up for grabs to very highly accurate, very fast, very difficult to intercept attackums. Attackums have terminal maneuverability and they come down very fast. So these are very difficult to intercept. And the U.S. has a lot of them. They produced about 1,650 of them. They've used maybe 400, maybe 500. So they may have 1,000 of these. And that can really help Ukraine to open up a whole new target set to free up the other systems that they have, like the Storm Shadow for other targets, because there may be some U.S. restriction on where these can be used. For instance, it, it has been said online that the U.S. said you can only use these for occupied Ukrainian targets. You can't use them for Russian proper Russian territory targets. So it's not it's not a game changer per se, but it means that uh, a lot of the close air support is going to be have to, that Russia has been flying. They're going to have to move that further back. A lot of the ammunition they're going to have to move that further back which means resupply for the front line is going to become more difficult, which means artillery fires for Russian units is going to be more difficult to sustain. It means uh, commanders and command posts are going to have to disperse further. So it really does help Ukraine buy some breathing space to get some more room to conduct better offensive operations and to strike the deep target that prevents Russia from being able to organize and defend itself I wish it had gone in sooner. Uh, clearly, you know, all this fear that, that it was going to cause Russia to escalate. Putin himself said this isn't going to change anything. Uh, you know, it's time for us to really stop inhibiting ourselves and give more. Uh, and I do hope that we give the longer range one. If we can give the 300 kilometer range variants, the M39A1 or the M48 or the M57 or the M57E1, these have longer ranges and they'll be able to actually strike targets in Crimea so that Russian forces can't hide anywhere on occupied Ukrainian territory. It also can further threaten naval assets uh, on the Crimean Peninsula, all the airfields, and really, really uh, give tremendous relief to the Ukrainian warfighting effort. Thanks. I was going to ask you there where you stood on the whole idea of, of striking inside Russia with Western-supplied weapons being escalatory and, and or provocative. I think you've answered that. If, you, if you've not done to your satisfaction, then please do wheel back to that. But separately, Beyond the rhetoric and political posturing, do you think channels of communication are still open between nuclear adversaries, not just in the context of Ukraine, Russia, but, but, but more broadly? Are we able to reach out and touch the other side and just take the temperature? Well, like I mentioned, there's talks that are ongoing. There was just a meeting, I think it was about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago in New York, where the US, the UK, France, Russia and China met together to talk about strategic stability and nuclear matters. The lines of communication are there. The question is, what do we want to say to them? And right now, Russia wants us to give up Ukraine and give up other things, give up NATO. They want us to give up on things. And so having a dialogue with them isn't tremendously useful. I mean, it's useful to send them deterrence messages and tell them, you know, any use of nuclear weapons in this conflict would be insane and we will destroy them if they do that. But aside from that, there's just no need for talks right now. You know what I mean? They want to intimidate us. They want to scare us. They want us to back off. And until we do so, they're willing to tear up arms control treaties and walk away from agreements. So quite frankly, I'm glad the channel is there. I'm glad we're able to talk if we need to. But right now, there's just not a lot to say other than to deter them from really escalating to the nuclear level in this conflict by threatening consequences. 
uh, and to continue to support Ukraine and, you know, to tell the Russians that the sooner they get out, the the quicker everything can change. Um, but they're just not in the mood. And, and if you read what Putin's saying, he feels like he's doing great. He feels like maybe even he's winning. His relations with China, his relations with the third world are just going gangbusters. And so, you know, we may really be looking at a very, very long, even generational conflict here with the Russians, where we see the world bifurcated into two halves with Russia and Iran and North Korea and all these countries on one side and everybody else on the other. And it's just a matter of making sure that we can get as many countries supporting our side and peel them away from this emerging Russia-China bloc. Broadening out slightly now, if I may, you've got more than 25 years experience of arms control, disarmament, non-proliferation. Without wishing to scare people or sensationalise this in any way or dumb down a very serious topic, how worried should we be right now about the threat of uh, nuclear escalation and perhaps use? If I'm looking at somewhere where I think nuclear use is more than less likely, um, I wouldn't say it's Russia using nuclear weapons right now. I honestly think that Putin, like I mentioned just a second ago, does think he's doing pretty well and thinks he can outlast us and thinks he can really prevail and peel off a lot of third world support uh, for Russia and for this new idea of some Russian world in opposition to a US-backed international order. He knows that if he uses nuclear weapons in this conflict or in any context, he's going to lose a lot of those countries, which are going to see him as being incredibly reckless and irresponsible by using nuclear weapons. So I'm not worried about Russian nuclear weapons use. I, I think it's more an, an intimidation tactic that they're trying to use to make us inhibit ourselves. Uh, China, I, in the short term, I don't see nuclear use as a possibility. Uh, there's always the issue if they decide to go uh, with Taiwan, that that could escalate and that would be a concern. But that's pretty much been a concern ever since China and Taiwan have been separate countries. It's a concern that just goes on and on. And China's desire to reunite and its willingness to escalate in that fight is something that's concerning. So not much has changed there. The only change is that China is building up a much larger and more diverse nuclear arsenal. And they've demonstrated that uh, they are willing to race probably up to the levels of the US and Russia. Again, that's not going to change my calculus in terms of whether or not I think they will use those nuclear weapons. But it does mean that more nuclear weapons, more possibilities for crises down the road in 10 years and 15 years and 20 years. Uh, North Korea, huge concern. I mean, the North Korean leadership has proven to be reckless and they're building nuclear warheads very small for battlefield use as well as trying to build ICBMs to be able to strike the United States. I am worried about them and a potential for war and a potential for nuclear use in a war with North Korea. But overall, I think we're not even back to the level of concern that the world had about nuclear war in 1983, which was a huge series of crises, including the shootdown of KL-007, the South Korean airliner, and a bunch of rolling war scares through the 80s. It's not at that level, not the number of nuclear weapons, not the level of readiness, not the level of fear. India-Pakistan concerns me, but really between the US and Russia and between the US and China, I still think the nuclear weapon use threshold is very high. The possibility is very low. And we need to focus more on not how do we inhibit ourselves and how should we be scared and how should we deal with our fears about nuclear use, but we should grow more confident in sending deterrence messages to our uh, adversaries, to building alliances that can deter and defeat our uh, adversaries, and to, and to think about this in a longer-term basis. But I really do want people to not be as concerned. Look, we've been through far worse crises with far more nuclear weapons on Earth. 
than we have right now. It's just a matter of really understanding these conflicts and having confidence to work with our friends and allies to defend our interests. Thanks. And what's the situation at the moment with Iran's nuclear activity? (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah. Iran is now at a point where I think a lot of people would say they have all the capabilities in place they need in order to make nuclear weapons if they choose to. They have enough nuclear material enriched to a high enough level that it's a matter of weeks, maybe months before they have uh, one or more viable warheads. But crossing that boundary, they know would have massive costs for them. And I don't think they think it's worth crossing that boundary yet. But they are testing the absolute limits of what the world can tolerate. And, uh, you know, so far they've gotten away with quite a bit. Um, Enriching nuclear material, highly enriched uranium, to 60% enrichment means it does not take long at all. I mean, like I said, a matter of weeks to turn that into 99% uranium, which is what you need for a perfect uh, nuclear bomb. Uh, They could go imperfect with 80 or 85%. So I'm concerned. And they had past military activities to work on how to make a warhead, how to do the conventional stuff that they would need in order to make a nuclear warhead actually work. And like I said, now they've actually got the material to make a small number of bombs in a short period of time. Um, We just have to make sure that they are absolutely 100% clear that crossing that threshold would start off a war. And I mean, that's a terrible thing to say, and it's it's very, very hard to do. Defeating uh, Iran is is much more difficult than uh, Iraq or Afghanistan or, you know, other fights that we've been in recently. But we have to be willing to send that deterrence message. Otherwise, uh, Iran's going to cross that threshold. Um, Russia's cooperation with Iran in terms of missiles and UAVs and potentially helping them out on the nuclear program is of huge concern. So we have to send a message that Iran cannot cross that barrier and then try to find a way towards stability, hopefully after the the war uh, between Israel and Hamas uh, resolves itself in some way, we can get back to working on deterrence and containment and diplomacy in the Gulf to try to put Iran uh, in its place to make sure that it doesn't cross the nuclear threshold and to work with the Gulf states so that they feel that the U.S. is working with them and allied with them. Because if Iran crosses the nuclear barrier, then Saudi Arabia might, then the UAE might, then Qatar might. We might look at a whole new nuclear cascade that makes the Middle East infinitely more dangerous. All the more reason why we need to send messages to Iran today to stay where they are, to be transparent, and then to work broader on how to stabilize the Middle East, which, as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, is a really, really difficult thing to do. Well, for our final question, let's come back to Ukraine. Um, William, given everything that you've learned and seen in the war in Ukraine over the past two years, what, I mean, if looking forward over the next few months, the next year, what do you think we might unfortunately have to expect in terms of the the missile war and anything else? (sighs) You know, on missiles, the one thing I would worry about a little bit with missiles in Ukraine would be that Russia would start using higher capable missiles, missiles that we haven't seen introduced into the conflict yet, like the 9M729, which is the missile that they built that exceeded the INF uh, restrictions and ended up eventually breaking the treaty, or the Onyx system, stealthier, faster missiles to hit hit very, very high um, uh, value targets. That would, number one, mean Russia was much more desperate and willing to use weapons that are normally earmarked for a war against the United States or uh, NATO against Ukraine. That would worry me because it, it, would, it would speak to a more desperate mindset from Moscow. Um, 
And it also would mean they would have the ability to destroy targets that Ukraine might now think are out of Russia's reach. So, so that's that's a concern. Also, uh, Russia's massive, almost infinite capacity for casualties worries me because ultimately if it's a numbers game in terms of bodies you know russia can win russia can grind down ukraine so you you really hope that there's some threshold point after which russia really starts thinking about how to wrap this conflict up uh, but i do worry that we're going to see more you know human wave attacks more armor just garbage armor like t62s t64s thrown into the front line just the kind of mass that you need to just grind the Ukrainians down. I'm worried about that. So I'm hoping that the introduction of attackums can change the battlefield geometry and really start to uh, score some victories, see some breakthroughs on the front, push Russia back, and see Russia having to sue for peace on terms that are better than we might see right now. I'm worried about attrition. I'm worried about a longer-term conflict and Ukraine's ability to sustain the kind of losses over that kind of period of time. And I'm worried about Western support too. Let's face it, elections, I don't even want to talk about U.S. elections, but elections happen and governments change and support can shift. So we've got to worry about that. And again, that's why I think we really have to give Ukraine everything that we can in the shorter term and hope that in a year's time, a year and a half, t- a year and a half time, we're not looking at a battlefield the way that we're looking at it now. We're looking at more Ukrainian advances. We're looking at retreating Russian troops and hopefully Russia you know, suing for peace. Well, thank you very much, William Albert, for your time. That was really fascinating. Dom, can I come to you for your final thoughts before we wrap this up? Yeah, final thought really is a bit of a riff off the last point that William made there, which is the, um, so we've seen reports today that the Attackums strike on Berdyansk and Luhansk uh, airfields a couple of days ago. We think in um, Berdyansk it's destroyed five KA-52 alligator attack helicopters and four MIA transport helicopters. So you saw they then saw Putin go, ah, doesn't matter, whatever, bring it on, lads, kind of thing, because it's something he doesn't care about. I mean, that's that's quite a, that's a, that's a big tactical hit but he doesn't he doesn't care about that and i just wonder what happens if there are more attack and strikes that that does hit something that he that he really does care about so if an attack and strike for example allowed a breakthrough in one of the you know he's t- he he they've claimed they've done the referendum in the four oblasts Zaporizhia, hezon donetsk and luhansk and they're now they all want to be part of russia if there was a strike that enabled some sig- very significant shift in ground in in those areas or Crimea, something that allowed a breakthrough into Crimea or against the Black Sea Fleet. I wonder then if we would see exactly how how much they, Putin really cared or didn't care, in, as he would have us believe, about the, the US gifted attackums. So I think before we get to anywhere near this idea of what's existential for him, I think we, I think we might have that have an have an inkling of that. In the reasonable future, if attackums are continued to be used with the effect that we saw, especially if they've been gifted some of the, the longer range variants and the single unitary warhead that would be fantastic at destroying ships or maybe the Kirsch Bridge or something like that. So, yeah, I think we, I think we are approaching an idea where we get a, we get a view about what, what he feels is, is actually very, very important to him. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. 
You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.